Welcome to the Hawkeye Psychic Podcast. And you're very welcome back to the Hawkeye Psychic Podcast uh, with your host Mark Kennedy. The Rugby Podcast took a bit of a week off there last week, but uh, safe to say myself and Liam were carved, were charged up uh, for more rugby uh, this weekend. Uh, this episode's going to focus on URC action first, four from four from the Irish provinces. We'll have a preview of the Six Nations round three. And also we look at some key contract news as well. Liam, how are things? Yeah, mighty Mark, mighty Mark. Uh, you know, it's the week- weekend started pretty good with the win against Edinburgh for Munster. So after that, it was happy days. What were your thoughts on the game, uh, Liam? I mean, 34-20 win against a highly drilled Edinburgh side on Friday night. It was it was really way more than we could possibly have hoped for. Possibly. I mean, this is definitely a potential but banana skin. I know that they had lost to um to Leinster previously but still you know they're they're, they're a fine attacking side and to get the bonus point win in such style and to prevent them getting any losing bonus point was actually a, a great result for Munster and it's got us right up the league of course as well yeah god it was a super like I mentioned it on my kind of Facebook page you know it was a must win game for Munster just given what had happened the previous week you know Glasgow Warriors and Scotland that was a kind of a disappointing result and it was a real kind of um, I felt kind of a must win for Munster but like they started the game Gusto I thought you know it was very impressive opening period really kind of dominating in the collisions um i thought it done who was absolutely fantastic from start to finish there Liam, and really did set up uh which release try very early days uh it was a good try yeah yeah absolutely um he he had, he'd almost a complete game actually yeah check it on who i have to say um and as i said like that that's that carries that really just made it that witchery just could power over at that stage um for that start of course you know he had a good poly position as well witchery um but he still had some work to do as well. Yeah, no, I thought it was very, you know, rock time as well for Munster. I thought it was pretty accurate. Uh, during the contest, you know, Chris uh, Cloyther came in, uh, had another good game, I thought, you know, breakdown, he's absolutely sensational. And uh, as well as that, Chris Farrell was very prominent at early doors as well, Liam, you know, uh, particularly for uh, the opening penalty for Ben Healy, you know, his kind of drive, you know, it was yeah. lovely line run there uh, to kind of get... Uh, Edinburgh to get pinged so I mean 10-0 up at that stage I thought everything was kind of pretty confident but uh, in credit to Edinburgh you know they haven't been top of the URC standings for nothing and they did regroup significantly in that second quarter and you know they did have a one or two moments there particularly in that second quarter I mean they tacked on their opening penalty but their try really did show case what they're capable of when they get a uh, ball in hand and get a little bit of time and space in attack. Oh yeah, yeah, that was a, just a, a beautifully worked try when Edinburgh got it well in behind us, like, and um, you know the two Argentinian guys prominent, of course, yeah, Buffelli and Majano, um, two of the classiest probably wingers in the league, and it just shows what they're capable of. I mean, they've been, they've been doing this all season, Edinburgh, and Majano has um, got his six tries now. He's he's just flying it in the league. Absolutely. It was kind of their speed of thought, their hand speed, everything else. I mean, I didn't think Munster did a whole lot wrong in terms of their defensive setup there, but it was just the speed, the attacking width that was created by Edinburgh was just sensational. You know, they're one of those teams in the URC. If you give a clean line break, Edinburgh more than likely will execute and run in tries. And I mean, it did provide things into the melting pot quite a bit there uh, and going into halftime really, but 
I suppose uh, one of the key marquee storylines of the, the, the day was uh, probably Simon Zebo uh, and his hat-trick, five touches, uh, three touchdowns. You know, it was. Um, but again, I think you have to credit the Munster overall performance here, just in terms of the the attacking lines, the quick rock ball, and the passing distribution that really kind of led to his three tries team. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, for me, you know, even from from the beginning, actually, we, we were talking about Farrell's crash ball. You know, it was it was your man uh, Casey was willing to break, you know, and I thought he did it all game, right? So, that, so it's Casey's break, breaking, right? But it was also the hands of Ben Healy, yes. absolutely crucial in all those other tries. And I, okay, obviously as well, you could say, well, you know, he was just literally there in the left wing and, and he ran in, but like, you know, that's that's what a winger does. No, I'll give him credit there. But it was, I think Healy made more, a lot of Zebo's tries there for sure. Oh, completely. I think that was, uh, I was very pleased with Ben Healy. Like, look, he's kicking his beyond reports, I think. And it's another probably a good opportunity for the Scottish teams to really run the rule over Healy, given the one-year contract situation. He was linked with Glasgow Warriors. I wouldn't be all surprised if Edinburgh Rugby are probably monitoring his situation now after the performance he had last Friday night. But it was his soft hands, particularly, as you say, Liam, particularly on Zebo's tries. You know, again, it looks very easy when Zebo gets that touchdown. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, it's the setup work, it's the concentration, it's the execution and Healy gave that in spades, I thought, and it was a superb performance for him, and really does probably send a, a statement of intent to Van Gran in terms of Healy and his progression. There's a nice little halfback battle going on here, particularly with the likes of Crowley. Uh, you have Ben Healy, and also, be remiss to say Jake Flannery here. Granted, Carby's back, you know, on international duty, but at least we have guys here that are putting a hand up, and the performances seem to be elevating week on week. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Healy. The, the, the most interesting thing is even for next the rest of the season. I mean, when Carberry comes back from the Six Nations, like <laughs> if 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 Healy keeps tearing up trees like this, it's going to be a real battle on our hands as to who you would pick for for the the knockout games as opposed to crunch European games and those those uh, URC games as well. I think at this stage maybe Crowley realistically. Um, yeah, get some game time, but um, you know, in the season, it's between the other two guys for the starting 10 spot. Exactly, you know, because you do have a key South African trip coming up next month. Um, again, uh, heading down to the Lions and also to the Bulls as well, those rearranged fixtures. And I know there's also a trip to the Dragons as well, uh, looming large as well. So, I mean, these are going to be key. I'm, I'm feeling right now here, Liam, you know, just given how tight it is in the URC the overall standings. I mean, you've Ulster, you've Leinster, you know, the Irish Conference as well, doing incredibly well. Every one of these games for Munster Rugby now is essentially a must-win, just given the form of the two other provinces there. And also you have Connacht Rugby probably on their heels as well. So I think uh, form on the training paddock is going to be quite crucial here, uh, I think, going into these games. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've got essentially at the top now of the URC, you've got like kind of five teams there, thereabouts. And they, to be fair, they were probably the five you would pick and start the season to be there there at this at this particular time. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the simple fact is, in in a month's time, you know, or in in, in a month's time, Munster could be like you know, um, have lost a few games and down the table again, you know. But look, but look at the fixtures. Also, you'd have to say Dragons, you know, really should be a bit of a banker, and even for South Africa, certainly 
um, the Lions are third from bottom of the table and <laughs> are not particularly... They're, they're a team that we could definitely pick off as well, I think, in that, in that trip. I would probably agree with that assessment, Liam, because I think the, the Lions, we marked this out in this podcast a few weeks ago, there has been an awful lot of concern, particularly in the South African rugby circles regarding the Lions. Um, you know, the other three teams have been very competitive in terms of their kind of local derby matches, but the Lions have shown flashes. I know they were quite close to result against the Bulls a few weeks ago, but that hasn't been the norm. It's been very much 15, 20 point losses. And I think there has to be question marks in terms of the Lions this year and even going forward. So I'd agree with you there. The Dragons will probably get to with Ulster Rugby in due course, but yeah, it's it's all evenly poised there. And I suppose it'd be remiss of us not to mention Dave Kilcoyne as well, 200 cap. Uh, for the province in a marvellous, marvellous achievement. But uh, you look led by example, didn't you, on Friday night? Yeah, I, 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 you know what, actually, when we talk about moments of the match, I have to say it was killer's crunch and, and tackle, um, n- knocking the number of back, uh, literally literally knocking knocking them. That that for me was actually the highlight of the game, I have to say, you know. And it was still at a crucial time when the game was in the balance, you know. Uh, exactly, then, because, I mean, you look at the tackle count here, and this is from Munster Rugby, I mean, the tackles... Munster put in 180 tackles during the 80 minutes, which is quite phenomenal when you kind of consider a 34-20 scoreline. Edinburgh only 81. I mean, you know, there was missed tackles of 18 versus 11, but I think you can, you know, that's kind of a pinch of salt, really, given the tackle count. And I think that coin tackle that you're talking about, Liam, that was absolutely crucial. I mean, game, as you say, it was still in the melting pot. Edinburgh were still well in this game. I mean, creates that turnover ball and it seemed to galvanise the crowd as well and the team to really kind of go and move into another gear uh, going into that fourth quarter. Yeah, and like that, that's ultimately how you win games and those little, little like, you know, key moments, key turnovers. And obviously, you know, you need to be scoring tries and all as well. But like, um, Edinburgh had a bit of momentum at that stage and like, you know, I, I could have actually seen them going over and, and then the game was completely in the balance at that stage. Oh, it's completely 50-50 game if they did go over at that stage, you know, so, um, which was something that maybe Mike Blair, the head coach, had highlighted after the Leinster rugby loss that the physicality and just being in the moment wasn't really there. I mean, they certainly were in game, uh, you know, a red zone position to score something, but it was a key kind of intervention from Kilcoyne, but his ball carrying, his work rate overall, you know, he did set the tone, as I said, long with O'Donoghue, uh, Cloite, um, again, Klein solid, you know, the pack, it was very much a pack platform, but I did love some of the tries, you know, particularly the Haley, uh, Mike Haley line break uh, to set up Zebo. I thought that was a superb turn of foot and to basically straighten uh, the Edinburgh last defender and pass it to Zebo. I thought that was an incredible score as well. And, I think there's an awful lot to like about this muscle performance. I know there's maybe parts of it, particularly penalty concession, stuff like that. But to score 34 points in conditions like that, you have to be kind of impressed, I would think, just given what went on there on Friday night. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have to be hugely, hugely impressed. Um, Munster overall played very well in that game. I mean, and uh, to be honest with you, I'm surprised with the, with the tackle count. I thought it was kind of a lot more, uh, a lot more even at times. Um, and as you said, the, the the rock ball again is key. So we had quick rock ball, then it means you're attacking phases very quickly. And the two halves we had were actually on complete form that night as well. So the platform and then the backs just run it in. Absolutely. And I thought the bench were superb when they came on as well. It was great to see Hognett, Cadellan as well come on as well. 
I mean, uh, given more an- ammunition there to that back row unit, I mean, geez, like back row unit depth chart wise, it's uh, it's looking pretty decent here for Munster rugby, isn't it? So, and you know, culminating to the end of the game, and I was delighted to see Neil Cronin play a very pivotal part in that last try. You know, he changed the direction of the attack. Uh, to set up uh, Zebo for the try because you know Cronin's block kicked against Glasgow. Scottston, I saw some social media commentary there and I thought it was completely overboard. I mean, it was one of those things, but Cronin bounced back, you know, as a true professional that he is, and you know, really did set up that decisive bonus point try, which, you know, in the context of things here, Ling, you know, a point or two in the difference come the end of the regular season, that could be an absolutely huge score for Munster uh, come the end of the season, regular season, to get into playoffs and big dance for European Championship rugby. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, look, as good as he played, like for his first sixty, obviously, you know, there was twenty minutes there, essentially, the final twenty minutes where, you know, we we needed that try, we desperately needed to try, and as you said, yeah, absolutely, Cronin completely um, bedazzled them, like basically by by going right and then then actually turning left, and yeah, beautiful pass, of course, as well, and yeah, good finish again for, for Zebo, and yeah, Haley, I mean. One thing maybe he's criticised for at times is he just puts the head down. He doesn't. He doesn't really look to pass the ball. But uh, yeah, look, I mean, it was it was a good break as well, actually. Yeah, to be fair. Yeah, I I've thought Mike Haley in the fullback position for Munster. He's evolved since he's been here. You know, we always knew he's defensive defensive qualities, but I think the last year to two years um, with Stephen Larkin in charge, and I mean, it might have been seen sporadically, but when he does get that a, a position or opportunity to hit the line. Uh, more chances than not, he is creating meters gained, which is, uh, you know, brilliant. Like, and I think it was key here as well. I think he's continuing to evolve into a, a vital player. And same, I think, for Simon Zebo as well. I think come that South African trip again here, Liam, you know, we'll mention it over and over again. But I think at the end of the season, like Zebo should be coming into form now. I mean, he hasn't had that many games. And I think he's going to be a vital, vital cog to the side, just given... Keith Earls, there seems to be extended injury kind of news on him. There is going to be experience required, particularly when you go down to South Africa and particularly at the regular end of the season games, particularly when we're playing Leinster rugby. And it's great to have a guy like Zebo that can finish off these moves and have that reputation that opposition do have to kind of warrant and respect. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like when you think about Simon Zebo, has there ever been a winger who, who like, like, like at a, a provincial level, who scores that phenomenal amount of tries, you know? Like, I know, I know that uh, um, Zebo went away to France for a few years, and then it allowed Erzy to to catch up a bit. But now he's just like completely gone again, like you know, ahead in terms of Munster record try score. And um, yeah, um, with Earls obviously sidelined for it seems to be quite a, a bit of the rest of the season uh, Zebo is going to be be uh, absolutely key to us getting wins on the road particularly in South Africa trip as well I also think like you know I mean I was looking at you know I'd be looking ahead to the end of the season and, and the knockout stages uh, and Exeter and like we would have had a bench of probably the likes of Kendellan and Hodnett and we hope again finally Jason Jenkins at some stage you know, and Zebo, you know, yeah. but Zebo can still come in and do a great job for the team anyway. Exactly. And I think that's going to be key. It's these experienced guys like the Jenkins we're talking about. We've talked about in the previous podcast. If we can get him absolutely fully fit, I think Jenkins is a massive, powerful unit to come in, even with 25, 30 minutes to go in these extra chief games or against Leinster rugby teams of that ilk. You're going to have to need that impact off the bench. So I think overall, I think 
Musser can be relatively happy with that performance anyway. I suppose we can switch uh, quickly to the other three uh, Irish provincial uh, fixtures over the weekend. I suppose Leinster accounted for Ospreys. It was horrendous weather in the RDS. Uh, they defeated the Ospreys 29-7. I suppose 200 cap for Sean Cronin, uh, the Leinster hooker. But, I mean, I think pack platform was the kind of the key word here uh, for Leinster with uh, Keane Healy and also Scott Penny's tries. But I suppose that the highlight reel moments here came from Jordan Larmer, the kick, the grubber kick from Byrne, and then James Lowe with his audacious try. Had no small measure from a burn kick to Jimmy O'Brien, who then set the New Zealander off for a memorable try. Um, again, Ospreys weren't really there at the races, unfortunately, but I think for Leinster, uh, a nice performance nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, that's a, that's a comprehensive scoreline, isn't it? And um, certainly G- Jimmy O'Brien is tearing up trees anyway this season for, for Leinster, and he was particularly prominent again in the game. Um, yeah, Scott Penny. Really, really stand up performance. He just shows what quality he is a real quality, quality player. And tremendous finish there, I must say, for, for James Lowe uh, with his show and go there as well and kicks. Exactly. Um, now, in fairness to the Ospreys, they were under the pump uh, for quite a long periods of that game. Now, Reese Webb's try was outstanding as well. Like Reese Webb's, you know, skill set as scrum half is sensational and I, I just wonder with him have Wayne Pivak and the Welsh coaching staff missed a trick by not having him there because his try was pure class spotting the gap around rock time and uh, you know made Luke McGrath look pretty ordinary which is saying an awful lot because Luke McGrath is a, a superb defensive player uh, for Leinster but again didn't really matter that much again I think Pack for Leinster controlled this the amount of penalties Andrew Brace was having to you know give I think Ospreys, you know, on another day could have been given an absolute hiding here. Um, but I think it was just the weather conditions, stuff like that, probably denied a few scoring opportunities here for Leinster. I think overall, great win for them. Um, you know, and they sit kind of honestly placed there in the overall URC uh, standings uh, here at 29-7. Uh, Connacht, the first win in 2000, since 2004 in Scarlets. Uh, they won 29-23. Uh, and I mean, I think there's an outstanding result here, Liam, for Connacht. Not just for the context of the URC, uh, but I thought just psyche-wise, like they went down pretty early 10-0 here in this game. But then they had the composure to get back into this uh, game. Uh, Sammy Arnold with a, a great try. Now, I don't know if you saw the replay here, Liam, but there was a few medical personnel on the pitch. And I don't know if Jones, the, the fly half for Scarlet's top, there was a few Connacht players out injured out in the sideline. But he's kind of diagonal kick was caught by Arnold in for the try and that kind of set the platform uh, there on. Uh, I mean, some lovely scores, three tries for Connacht during the game, uh, Leva, Fifita, and also John Porch as well. Now, Paul Boyle came back into the starting lineup and I thought had an immense game. It carries 34 uh, metres. Uh, Keen Pernandagast, 16 tackles, was outstanding. And at the back line overall for Connacht was very lively. Now, I think there's been commentary about some of the officiating as well here, uh, Liam. Uh, Fafita's kind of yellow card and then a second yellow card straight after he came back for kind of, a, it looked like kind of a coming together, um, uh, a body check, but I thought it was a pretty harsh call. But again, Connacht were full value. They were 29-13 up at that stage. Um, but again, I think big serious questions for the Scarlets, I think, going into the end, rest of the season. It just hasn't happened for them and you wonder with Dwayne Peel and the Scarlet's coaching staff uh, what next? 
Yeah, no, but I mean, like, in in terms of Scarlet's, you know, you'd have to say in terms of the quality of the squad, I mean, Cardiff have the best, right, uh, team and, and squad in, in Wales by far and away. And, and then you'd nearly be expecting Scarlet's, like, you know. And you you'd be expecting a lot more from Scarlets. They they have the tradition. They they have the players still. I would I would argue they still have the players as well. And just hasn't happened for them at all this season. And uh, going to Scarlets was always like one of the tough trips in the league. And so that's a just tremendous result for Connacht. And um, you know you have Carty flying and Fafita actually finally you know played a big game as well. We brought in his power along as well. Exactly, you know that. I think Fafita as well, he had a powerful game. I think the red card, it does kind of, you know, it's an unfortunate one I, to me personally. I think the second instance is, doesn't warrant the second yellow card, but he had a powerful game. Murray as well had a great game in second row. And we've been asking here, Liam, in this podcast for the Connacht front five to really step up. Duggan as well, I think, had 18, 19 tackles. I think to a man on that front five, they responded. And I think from, um, from a kind of a coaching perspective for Connacht, it's, it's a great win, you know, kind of, Again, it's one of these wins that keeps them in touch with the the top teams here. But again, it's must-win territory for Connacht going uh, for the rest of the season. But well done to them. First win in Scarlet since 2004. That's uh, that's a nice little hoodoo off the back. And then finally, Ulster Rugby. And to be honest, whenever I see a game at Dragons on a Sunday afternoon in February, it's always a gale force wind mud bath. And this was no exception. I mean, 12-0. Uh, I mean... Quality-wise, it was in very short supply, just given the weather conditions. But in fairness to Ulster, they were professional. They got the job done. And James Hume probably and McCluskey probably standing out for Ulster, particularly in attacking play. Yeah, um, I, all I can say is I heard that the conditions were horrendous, that like um, kicks were basically going backwards or the side, you know. Um, so you might elaborate on that more. Yeah, because, I mean, the, the tail of the tape, I mean, Dragons had a breeze behind them the first half and again Ulster Rugby platform wise very impressive really stemmed any sort of home attacks Marcus Ray scored a try just before half time and I think the highlight here was the James Hume line break there'd been precious few clean line breaks before that but Hume made a 30 30 35 meter gain great support from Doak um, to basically have it within two three meters of the Dragons line and a quick recycle got Marcus Ray into the corner 5-0 at the half time, and then soon after the break, John Andrew with the try, and again another Ulster rugby attacking ball try here. Uh, uh, Liam, I've lost count the number of tries they scored in UOC using that attacking ball, but it's complete weapon for them. And at that stage, Dragons pack had struggled; they had been giving away an awful lot of penalties, particularly at mall time. So again, and it was a great kick from Doak as well to make it 12-0. But I suppose, unfortunately for Sam Davis. Dragons did try to put on a bit of a spurt, uh, and he was presented with a penalty just left of the post, about 22 metres up, but given the conditions, it went wide. Uh, kind of the, whatever way the ball went, it just literally went to the left-hand side of the post. And Scarlet, uh, well, the Dragons basically scored a shutout. They've had no home win uh, this season as well, so it looks quite ominous for the Dragons, just given the departures of Hibbert, Roberts as well. But again, Ulster, these are the games, Liam, you always say it here in this podcast. Um, these are the games that we won't really remember. But when it comes to the end of regular season standings, these games where the squad depth is basically exercised, 
these are the games which will be separating the seedings. And for us to rugby, it's a very professional performance in very tough uh, tough conditions. Yeah, exactly. This this is actually more than anything else the kind of performance and result that proves that Ulster really are in contention for the title. I mean, how many times in the last three seasons have we lost away, you know, recently even this season to uh, Ospreys, losing away to um, Scarlets, those sort of, you know, re-performances where you reasonably be expecting to even get a result away. Um, and it's knocked Munster back in the last few seasons and even up to, up to now. So, yeah, um, that that's a actually a tremendous result for Ulster. Yeah, it certainly keeps the momentum going there as well, doesn't it, uh, Liam? I mean, they're top of the URC standings. I mean, Leinster are hovering with intent there in second place. Getting of Glasgow, Munster, Edinburgh there as well. But again, it just keeps the momentum building quite nicely here for Ulster and Dan McFarland's side. Uh, heading into more crunch fixtures and then going into to lose uh, last 16 uh, fixtures, which look epic, just given the form uh, guide that uh, Ulster are on at the moment. So we'll probably leave it there for the URC anyway. I mean, great weekend again for the Irish provinces. And uh, maybe we'll turn our attention here, uh, Liam, to the Six Nations round three uh, kind of preview here. I mean, we can go down and through chronological order, uh, put the heads on the block time. Scotland v France. I mean, Scotland, again, I don't know. I was massively disappointed but with them in Cardiff in round two, facing a French t- side that uh, showed cl- flashes of absolute brilliance against Ireland, but then were made to kind of struggle, particularly in the second half. I don't know wh- where you see this game going, uh, Liam. Yeah, well, the first thing I should remember is that uh, Scotland actually beat them last year with Duhan van der Merva, if I remember. Um, so, you know, it's a, a Scotland, France, you know, Scot- the Scots could very well turn up and, and turn over France and put the whole championship completely on its head now. So in terms of Scotland, I mean, yeah, there's some good players actually missing Johnny Gray and, and Rory Sutherland are actually going to be out for that game. France, really, you know, they have to kick on. This is this is this is the sort of banana skin that essentially deprived them of, of winning the championship, uh, say, last year. So if I was looking at it, I would say Scotland are, are at home to France. I think it'll be actually quite a close affair. Um and I think this time that France, I would say maybe by five points. Yeah, I mean, I think one of your great points there, Liam, was to do with this Scottish pack depth. It's going to get tested massively now, isn't it? Likes of Johnny Gray, Rory Sunderland out. They've five injured, six coming into the squad. Getting their second row squad depth looks a bit treadbare at the moment. Um, I, I just worry for Scotland. And I mean... This is after an opening round Calcutta Cup win against England. Does this side, this team to me against in Wales seem to believe their own hype a bit, that they thought they were better than they actually were because I thought that performance was completely flat. They seemed to think that the game was going to be presented to them on a plate when Wales manfully basically shut down kind of Finn Russell, shut down the space, good aggressive defensive line speed. I think Scotland will provide a response, but I think, as you say here, France surely looking historically at what happened the last time they went to Murrayfield, I think there is a 10-point win here for France. Um, Honestly, I do. I think they showed flashes against Ireland, and I think, you know, Ireland, to their credits, stuck in and hung in there. I just don't get that sense from Scotland if they were to go down early here. I think France could absolutely rule the roost here. Um just with their back three. Penno, I think, has been playing outstandingly well and he played outstandingly well against Ireland. You know, you do Pont and Mac that are just warming to the task now after being affected a little bit with the COVID winter to lose situation. I think it's a French win all day long here. Um, you know, and 
Scotland may have, uh, I think Scotland's front five may have massive issues here. Wouldn't be surprised if one or two getting into the sin bin, particularly in that defensive mall. I think France will relish this. Um, you know, so I think we're both going for the away win there. And then uh, after that, uh, England v Wales. I mean, this is a interesting fixture because, you know, England narrowly got beaten by Scotland and Murrayfield. They had acres of possession territory, didn't really execute. And then they came back with a 33-0 shutout of uh, Italy and Rome. I mean, you can say it's Italy, but I thought there was good signs for England. And then Wales backs against the wall after their Dublin nightmare. I don't think it was a shock against Scotland, to be perfectly honest. You know, I mean, people have been critical of that game. You know, it was a thriller, but I think the quality of it may have been a little bit questionable. But I think Wales got the job done 2017. So, again, these two, you know, don't need much to kind of get a competitive game going. So it'll be interesting here, I think. Yeah, well, for a start, we've had Mike Brown uh, come out and say that I suppose no Welsh player would currently make the English starting team. So that's going to be pinned up on... (laughs) The dashboard by Gwen Pivak, I I reckon, you know, because e- even if you think about it, I mean, that probably isn't correct, actually, you know, you probably would have the two Welsh wingers anyway, <laughs> or the two English wingers. But in ter- in terms of England, yeah, I mean, look, we go actually to Scotland game and yeah, Scotland played OK, you know, but was it really that England actually threw that game in many respects, you know, uh, as well? And so they they have a kind of lack of discipline and a lack of control, and uh, you know so that sometimes some kind of Marcus Smith always makes up for you know with his genius and the uh, the forwards yeah some of the, the forwards for England still aren't uh, kicking on as well either um, up front I suppose I'd be looking at like you know the back row as well. So in terms of it, yeah, I think this is a quite a, you know, it can be an interesting game to call. England, I suppose, are at home. Um, and recent records have been, it's been quite quite tight between the two of them. Wales still are without their, their key leaders. So um, I would be tipping England. I would go maybe plus 10 points. We were critical of the, England, uh, the Welsh front five, particularly against Ireland in round one. And in fairness to that front five, they stepped up massively against Scotland. But I do feel that this England front five is a different animal to what they faced in Cardiff in round two. And I think, again, it's that Welsh front five are going to have to stand up and really be counted for because otherwise it could be another road trip nightmare for them. Uh, I think from England's perspective, I think they may have stepped on their now long-term halfback partnership, Bristol Bears-Ramble and also Marcus Smith, 9-10. They look a very exciting combination um, for England. And Joe Marchant as well, switching to 13, huge. Provides a bit of directness, provides a bit of go for ball at 13. Eddie Daly, great footballer, but uh, to be honest, if he's not playing 15 or at the wing, I think I thought that was a baffling decision off Eddie Jones uh, for that Scottish game. Uh, and also with George as well, back at hooker as well, did seem to provide a bit of solidity there. You know, he scored his two tries against Italy as well. Yeah, for Wales, I think it's going to be, you know, really under the pump for the first maybe 25, 30 minutes here. Really absorb what England... England are going to have massive territory here. And I think the key question for this game, Liam, is how effective England are going to be in the red zone. And, you know, what sort of attacking lines, what sort of attacking threats. Because they were very kind of prone to Grubber kicking that ball away, particularly against Scotland. Will they do a similar tactic here against Wales? Or will they vary it out a little bit, you know, take... A little bit more in contact, offload, quick hands. So, yeah, for me, I think it's Wales or England. Um, 
you know, to win this one. Uh, and hopefully a little bit of a better performance for Wales road trip wise than in Dublin. But I can only see 10, 15 point win going away for probably England at the end. But uh, it's going to be an intriguing fixture there. And then it kind of leads then to Sunday, uh, Ireland uh, v Italy, uh, 3pm in the Aviva Stadium. Yeah, Italy kind of coming in zero for two. I have notes here. One step forward, two steps back. One step forward is, I mean, a progressive performance against France in the opening round. And then to get shut out at home to England and Rome. Again, some very unforced errors in the pack as a unit seem to be pretty overwhelmed by uh, England. How do you feel this one's going to go, Liam, and maybe Ireland team selection on the day? Yeah, it's it's really it's only a question of of how much Ireland are going to win by, isn't it? Really, um, at this stage, yeah, Italy, like you know, usually in the first few games in the championship, they're actually competitive to a point, and then they just absolutely collapse because injuries take their toll and they don't have squad depth, and when you have guys like Negri just being being carted off, you know, yeah. it's 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 looking quite ominous for them. In terms of, yeah, Italy, yeah, I, I, I don't really think they've really progr- done any progression really this season, unfortunately, has to be said. So for Ireland, um, you'd be looking at definitely, in terms of starting positions, it's quite intriguing, actually, you know, because you could even be looking at, we'll say, Hinshaw Aki. Uh, you know, <laughs> they haven't actually played together too often at full international level, you know. Um, I'd like to see maybe a, a case for Carty. To get a game, and not just when I say get a game, I mean I mean start a game, <laughs> very very much so. We need to be looking at um, props as well, um, kind of our 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 backup uh, props as well coming in. And yeah, James Lowe is back in the squad, so he certainly is definitely pushing for selection as well. I'd be looking to see him as well. If Henderson came into the second row, um, even Tyburn at six. Yeah, it would be an interesting selection as well for this game. The team selection for Ireland might be the, the kind of key pre-game and match commentary here, because no disrespect to Italy here, but as we, I've kind of said it here repeatedly on the blog and Twitter, you know, 2023 is where you're looking to kind of evaluate yourself with everyone at World Cup. And I mean, this is a perfect opportunity for Andy Farrell uh, and his coaching staff to run the rule over maybe a few players. I mean... Hugo Keenan is a lock at full back anyway, but would it be would it be kind of prudent to now kind of maybe see a Mike Lowry or someone of that ilk at full back? Maybe a James Hume as well kind of comes into the picture because I think Farrell does like Hume in terms of his go forward ball. And maybe a Ryan Baird as well at second row. Um, you know, particularly his athleticism, everything about it. Um, and maybe Crystal Ball, Tom O'Toole as well, maybe being kind of a decision we have to run the rule over Tom O'Toole. I mean, he's been given precious little time in terms of being in Test Match Rugby. I think this is one where we need to kind of run the rule over guys like that to see, you know, they need to get experience first of Test Match Rugby and see whether they can get to that level. Um, So I think the decision here from Andy Farrell would be intriguing. I would be with you as well in terms of 10. I think Sexton, we know what he has. It's between Carberry and Carty for game minutes. You know, and it's really just down there. He probably will go for Carberry, but again, if, what's Jack Carty there for um, as well? So maybe get some lengthy game minutes if, if we get a bonus point pretty early in the game, you know, maybe with 45, 50 minutes gone, throw him in for 35 minutes just to kind of get that kind of squad depth going in terms of 10. So, yeah, for me, hopefully, I'm hoping for Italy, just given reports, you know, in terms of 2025, that they come out with a performance here um, because it it's required. Uh, but I think Ireland here, if they can just go through the process, execute well, 
set piece wise looks like Ireland, particularly scrum and line out particularly. It would be interesting in the line out though, I would say, Liam, you know, with news that Ronan Kelleher has been ruled out for the remainder of Six Nations. Uh, you have Dan Sheehan there, Rob Herring obviously comes into the picture as well. Dave Heffernan is who will be kind of that go-to guy now, um, you know, because it seemed like Kelleher had that jersey uh, at the start. So I wonder, that'll be an intriguing kind of subplot to see who gets that jersey uh, for Italy. And a good performance there for whoever starts may kind of be a, a viewpoint to England and also Scotland uh, going forward. But for me, Ireland, I think, bonus point win, probably a 20, 30-plus point win, unfortunately, for Italy, uh, which is not doing anything for them in their development, even though they're under 20s are doing superbly well at the moment. There was more Six Nations news alluded there about 30 seconds ago. Just in terms of that uh, English media reports about 2025 and the South Africa rugby coming into the Six Nations at the expense of Italy. I don't know what your thoughts were, Liam, on that. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I think there there is something to it. I mean, it, there's, there's always been, the last few years, when you had the South African teams being allowed into the URC, the next logical step for them as a, a union is to completely line their national team playing in a competition in the same season as their URC sides. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's definitely on the cards. I think um, in terms of, I don't think it's an, a thing of Italy being kicked out. I think PR-wise it would be a disaster. For South Africa coming in, I think for the for the Six Nations it would be a bit of disaster because Italy would be pretty much abandoned and professional rugby would die a death completely. Exactly. Yeah. I also think Italy realistically are probably the twelfth best team in the world, and so if we're talking about this new World League, um, the top twelve teams, you could see it that basically you'd have the seven in playing in Europe. And then the other five are going to be the All Blacks, the Aussies, the Japanese, the Argentinians and the Fijians. So that's that that's very handy. You know, there's your top 12 there. Um, I think actually there's an argument to be made in terms of tradition, funny enough, in terms of that it's a European competition and it could be actually slightly devalued. Um, if South Africa were to come in. So let's look at it from a European um, perspective. From a South African perspective, you could nearly argue that giving up games against the best team in the world each year, and sometimes it's it's definitely two games a year, potentially sometimes it's, it's, it's three, um, to give that up also um, is hard to do, um, and maybe they should be thinking through that a bit more as well. Yeah, I suppose, look, as you say, Aileen, I think CVC, the private and equity firm that has stakes now in URC, they have stakes in an awful lot of competitions, including Six Nations. This is, I think, inevitable that this will happen sooner rather than later. And I think 2025, I know you mentioned that, um, off uh, air here regarding kind of uh, South African obligations, particularly to the rugby championship as well. That will have to extend probably to 2026. But again, if the South African sides are playing European Cup rugby, they're playing URC against Irish, Scottish, Welsh, the inevitability is that they come into this tournament. But it, as I say, it should not be of the expense of Italy. And I think this is where the creative scheduling should be coming into play here. This whole kind of test match rugby versus club, professional club, I think there has to be a complete massive overhaul in terms of how fixtures are scheduled. It wouldn't hurt now for, I think, Six Nations, even organisers, even to look at this into April, that you have a window from April to August 
to literally play test match rugby. And again, what people haven't even mentioned here is the tier two t- nations <laughs> that have been on the outside for so many years. I mean, Six Nations really has the tournament organisers, their committee members. We've never really talked about Spain, have we? And Romania, Georgia, uh, in terms of even getting an opportunity to get into the big dance. If that is the case, if South Africa does come in, then I think there has to be some sort of promotion, relegation consequence here in terms of a tier two nation. We have the European Rugby Championship going on at the moment, some exhilarating games going on at the moment. What is the end prize for whoever wins that after the five, six games? Um, you know, that sort of perspective. And then you have World Rugby that have to come in then because, as you say yourself, Southern Hemisphere, where does Samoa come into the picture here? Where does Tonga come in? Where do all these other tier two nations that want to basically aspire to get to the next level, how are they going to develop if they're just basically on the outside, maybe getting an occasional November International or maybe a summer series with a second or third string side from, let's say, the Northern Hemisphere coming to visit them for a one-off test match? I think it has a serious implications for rugby at the moment. I mean, it will happen, South Africa coming in, but I think you could have literally the seven teams, you know, six fixtures each. You could have literally a bye week for every one of the sides, and then maybe midway through, you could literally have a kind of a one-week window as well. But maybe switching it to April might uh, incentivize a few more broadcasters to advertise, let's say you're getting more exhilarating games than maybe in February where it's windy, stormy, wet conditions, let's say in Dublin on a Sunday, where it could be a bit benign on an April-May day and you're getting 50 to 32 score lines, which, you know, that's what we're looking for, you know, put bums on seats and everything else so I think from the perspective I think the PR and the way this news is broke is very unfortunate for Italy because they're trying damn hard to kind of progress and develop their under grassroots you can see what in the under 20s their 6-0 win over England was a marquee result that is completely diluted after news of this happening so I think from the perspective of Six Nations I think the members have to basically would be firmly behind the Italians here that they're here for the long haul I mean it's not long ago when France were struggling in the 50s 40s 50s they were getting hockeyed <laughs> you know same with Ireland you know different periods different teams go through cycles so now it's a case of this be a worrying president so I think yeah I mean this will inevitably happen money will talk eventually but I think there has to be proper discussion in terms of creative fixture scheduling world rugby have to get involved here in terms of where is the demarcation between the professional club rugby scene versus your international test match and then if it's a case of four to five months being designated for Test Match Rugby, and if players are going to literally essentially be contract players for Test Match Rugby, like in Sevens Rugby, then so be it. But I think it's a fascinating story and, you know, plenty of viewpoints. But again, I think South Africa looking in, they're obviously looking to get in here. Um, yeah, I suppose we conclude here, Liam, with some contract news as well. And I mean, while we're in the South African realm and domain, uh, Mr. Ethabeth uh, is leaving Toulon uh, to go to the Sharks. What a marquee signing for the URC. Yeah, Paki's Paki both isn't too happy. No. <laughs> uh, and among others, either is the president of Toulon, it has to be said. And this is a thing that, you know, maybe hasn't been mentioned up to now, but the South African players, oh my God, they're, they're excellent players. But they haven't really contributed in the way they should across the board, really, in England, in uh, France and in Ireland as well. Just in terms of the amount of time that they're now available. And again, this is all back to the, the, the seasons not being aligned. The time they're not available when they're in training with the South Africa for a rugby championship. And then they seem to come back, play two games and get injured for like <laughs> the rest of the season. Um 
we've had a lot of South African players haven't really played that that much rugby in the past two seasons. It's a bet is kind of like a, a sign of the across the board. South African players are not actually worth money for European clubs to be paying them big money as their marquee signings. And now with England, with the, the salary cap, they have to look at their players. What guy are they going to be actually offloading? And it's going to be the South African guy. It's going to be Lou De Jaeger is also going to be offloaded by uh, Sale Sharks as well. In Ireland, like we think that Damien Delende, and he probably has played the most games of any South African in Europe <laughs> in the last two seasons uh, as, a, as a measure of success. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because, as you say, Bota, I wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of that guy. Absolute monster. You know, he came out with comments saying, and he was very disappointed to hear that news that Ethabet was going to uh, leave Toulon at the end of this season. Uh, said that he had plenty more to give to that rugby club. So was Bota's association with Toulon uh, is pretty legendary, along with Wilkinson. But the Toulon club president comes out to the media and basically cites Ethabet is a handicap to the club. I mean, for the player and his officials and representatives, I mean, that's kind of telling you that you're not wanted. And I think the Turks, I think, could be getting an absolute steal here in terms of signing, leading into 2023, another marquee South African Test match guy coming back into South African rugby, will be managed well. God, like South Africa look pretty stacked, I would think, going into 2023 with all these players coming back. And I think, Liam, you kind of alluded to, I think, five South African test match team now around the Sharks. So, I mean, what a tonic here for URC, you know, literally for teams traveling down South Africa to see these quality of players uh, coming uh, into the, the league, league week in, week out. Rassi. That's what I say. <laughs> it's yeah. all part of the grand plan for Rassi again, isn't it? Like, you know, he'll have, by, by the end of the before World Cup, he'll have the entire Springbok, like, first 15 of uh, will be playing in South Africa again. Yeah, that's the, that's the way it, it looks anyway to me. But look, Etzebeth is, like, the one of the best second rows in the world, so to have him there is, like, incredible, like, you know. And uh, the much maligned URC, you know, Tyg Furlong, Exabet, Doris, Byrne, Khaleesi, you know, when you when you think of those names, <laughs> there you go. They 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 they'd all be in a potential um world fifteen. Um so yeah, tremendous signing, all right. Oh yeah. I mean I think the brand, the URC, it's a fledging brand. I think in the next few weeks hopefully ignites the passion with South African fans for the URC, very similar to Irish, Scottish, Welsh uh, fans as well of the league, you know. If we can develop those games superbly well next month, I think we have a, a superb brand. And as I say, it's a marquee signing again. Ethabed will be featuring for the Sharks quite prolifically. It's a, it's a great, great signing. And as I say, the Agar guys like that could be kind of transferred down to the lines again. And we've maligned the lines uh, in this podcast episode. But again, they could get a few of these guys coming back from Europe. I mean, where is the destination here for them for an awful lot of these South African guys? I mean, the salary cap in the Gallagher Premiership is pretty stringent. French pro rugby now have a bit of a negative attitude on South African players. The only other place they can really go is probably Japan. And I mean, going into a 2023 kind of World Cup year, you don't, don't want to be doing that because Rasmus has all these domestic guys there waiting and willing for Curry Cup games, all that sort of stuff. So it will be an interesting watch to see these players move in the next probably few weeks. With that then, maybe we switched maybe more domestically in Tyburn, uh signing the IRFU contract last week. A superb tonic uh, for Irish rugby in general, but I think for any professional Irish rugby player, you know, the case study of a Tyburn who was kind of in the provincial systems, 
then went away to the Scarlets, made a name for himself and reputation for himself, moves back, now is basically rewarded with a long overdue RFU contract for three years. Great news altogether, Liam, isn't it? Oh, tremendous. And also, like, I mean, he'd be one of the first names on a team sheet now, you know? <laughs> Maybe behind, uh, obviously, Ty Furlong. So um, from where these came from, it was just crazy, you know, to, to be effectively let go from uh, Leinster to have the Scarlets take a chance on him. Um, that season, of course, then that he, when he was with them, he suddenly became like the best back row in Europe, um, playing for a tremendous team. And uh, then he comes back to Munster, and he even, you know, he's kicked on more uh, now. And again, like for Ireland too, he, he's he's um, pretty much un- un- undroppable. It's for he for me, he's one of these guys that makes the key moments in games now. You know, in terms of his rook ball in terms of his turnovers and in terms of his tackles and um we are well done to him for getting that the uh, a central contract with the irfu exactly the british irish and lions tour again players just literally excel after a tour like that you know the coaching you're getting day in day out you know with your peers guys that you've looked up to stuff like that he's elevated his game to the next level in this year quite clearly and again, he's the overall Mr. Versatile as well, second row, back row. But <laughs> I think we've seen in recent weeks, like he's it's a superb footballer as well. I mean, that 50-22 he's, he kicked against uh, France and Paris, like that's no accident. Like, I mean, it was superb kick in behind. Um, so, I mean, in fairness to IRFU, that's a very much an astute piece of business to sign him long term now. Uh, it's kind of sending a clear message. Uh, to other players, you know, that this is the project, the long-term project, and Byrne is going to be well and truly um, there. So, mass congratulations. I mean, RFU contract, obviously going to stay in Munster uh, Rugby as well, hopefully long-term as well, uh, which is great. So, no, congratulations to Tyke Byrne there anyway. You know, it's uh, onwards and upwards for him. And then, I suppose, concluding here, contract news, uh, JJ Hanron. Um, news there last week as well that JJ, like his versatility at 10, 12, 15 is beyond reproach. Super tenure with Munster. We talked Carmon Avern, you know, a very valued member, but news now that he is moving from Carmon Avern to the Dragons uh, next season. What were your thoughts, Sterling? Money, money, money. <laughs> like, mm. in, in spite of the fact that the Welsh region seemed to be struggling for money wise. Uh, suddenly, whenever they really need the money to sign marquee players, they seem to have it. You know, it's, it certainly has happened with Cardiff. They have three or four big signings like, like lined up for next season. And um, JJ, it's unfortunate because he's going to a team that are going to be pretty much second bottom of the table in the next season or two. Uh, he, at Clermont, like he, he was getting his game time. He was getting his game. So yeah. it's uh, it's it's a pity to to see that he's kind of um a, such a versatile skillful player is choosing the dragons over to be honest uh, you, you're almost hope he'd, he'd have went to any other team but the dragons at this stage yeah i mean the press release was you know speaking to dean ryan he was excited about the project but i mean christ i, I think back to the bernard jackman days and dragons i mean at least he got a few home wins under his belt thank you for listening to this podcast episode if you liked what you heard in this podcast why not subscribe to the Hawkeye Psychic podcast on either Amazon, Spotify, YouTube or Twitter platforms. You can also follow me at Hawkeye Psychic on Facebook and Twitter for the latest sporting opinions, articles and reports.